Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, one of the pastors at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Do you live in the Payson, Utah area? Somewhere within an hour of here? Come visit. We'd love to meet you. We meet Sunday mornings at 930 for Sunday School for All Ages. We have corporate worship together at 1045. Would love to visit with you, get to know you better. You can also come on Wednesdays at 7. We have a, a Bible study at 7 o'clock. We've been doing a series on angels and demons. So, hey, if you're into that sort of thing, I, I've been teaching through that series, and uh, it's been very interesting to learn more and more about what the Bible says about angels and demons. For instance, did you know that Psalm 78 says that manna, that that bread-type stuff, the wafer material that was fed to Israel in the wilderness back in the book of Exodus. Did you know that manna, according to Psalm 78, is angels' food? Wow. Angels' food. Crazy. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today. We're not talking about that at all. We are covering Titus chapter 2. There's a small portion of Titus 2. What's on the schedule today, the uh, LDS schedule for this uh, uh, year going through the New Testament, is First and Second Timothy and Titus. Did you know that that is like 12 chapters? <laughs> well, we're just picking the end of Titus 2, 11 to 15, one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible. Titus 2, 11 to 15, let's take a gander. Uh, I guess real quick, context. In the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young man who he left in charge at the island of Crete to establish order in the churches. In chapter 2, he was telling Titus, here's what you can encourage these different demographics to do. Men, women of different ages even, uh, masters, slaves, etc. Here's what you can urge them to do to live for the Lord in their particular contexts. And then after he does that, he gives us this amazing little passage that kind of just stands on its own. Titus 2, 11 to 15. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives himself, sorry, not gives, gave, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. Great, great passage. As you start this passage out, it can almost seem like Paul is teaching some sort of works righteousness salvation or just some contrarian form of grace compared to uh, every other passage about grace that he's written. He says the grace of God has appeared, and it's like, yeah, amen. Bring salvation to all men. Yes, yes, amen. And we recognize, obviously, not every man is saved, but the offer of salvation goes out to all men indiscriminately. This grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So is Paul 
contradicting himself because we've looked in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. We've seen Paul say over and over again that grace is a gift. It's unmerited favor. Is he now saying that you can merit the favor of God? That God's grace is actually work for us? That we have to deny ungodliness in order to receive grace? That we have to deny worldly desires in order to qualify ourselves as candidates for grace? He also says, beyond those things that we are to shun, we are to embrace living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Well, he is not defining grace with this, okay? He, he's not saying, this is what grace is. Grace is you working hard to be perfect, <laughs> okay? That's not what he says. What he is doing is he's writing to Titus, who, of course, is a believer. Titus is a Christian. Titus is someone who has already been forgiven of all of his sin, past, present, and future, because of the finished work of Jesus. And he's telling Titus to talk to other believers about how they are to live. And how they are to live is an outflow of the gospel itself. The gospel is the work of Jesus, and it is applied to our lives at a moment in time, once for all, based on faith, not on works. However, the life that we live after believing in the gospel is directly tied to the gospel. The life that we live, the choices that we make after becoming Christians is directly affected by the fact that we are Christians. And so what Paul is communicating to Titus and encouraging him to communicate to others there in Crete is that God's grace actually instructs us. The gospel instructs us. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us to earn anything from God. It doesn't tell us to work for our salvation. That's not the gospel. That's not grace. However, God's grace, which is a free gift, though it is a free gift, it instructs us to live in a certain way, a way that honors God. The grace of God so affects us, or it should so affect us, that our lives would be radically changed by his work in the gospel. This salvation that has come to all men, again, not every single person has received salvation, but we take salvation to all people. This salvation that has come to all people instructs us who have received it to now live for God. We just looked last week at the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. Nope, hit the wrong button there. There we go. In 1 Thessalonians 1, they turned to God to serve the living and true God from their dead idols. Salvation instructed them to do that. So that work of living for God, serving God, having the work of faith, having the labor of love, having the steadfastness of hope, all of that was instructed to them by the gospel itself, by God's grace. Now, that doesn't mean that their work and that their labor became the gospel. I mean, Paul would say, heaven forbid, but they were instructed by the gospel to live in a different way. That's what the gospel does. God's power, the gospel itself, changes people. And so uh, Paul here is telling Titus, instruct people to be instructed by the gospel, <laughs> okay? To remind people that the gospel instructs us to deny worldliness, to deny ungodliness, that the gospel instructs us to live sensibly, 
to live righteously, to live godly, even in this present age that is full of perversions. God has called us, because we are recipients of salvation, to live this way. And he expounds on this in verse 14. I'll come back to verse 13 in a moment, where he, and this is what Paul does, his thoughts bounce around when he writes. Uh, These are inspired writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Paul's personality is still here, isn't it? He writes long sentences, and he meanders with all kinds of different topics. It's amazing. But he says in verse 14 that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. He gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus died in our place for our sins that as now believers in the gospel, we are redeemed by Jesus. There's a redemption that's taking place. He paid the price. We are purchased by his blood. We are his slaves. He's our master. We belong to him. He owns us. We are redeemed. Jesus gave himself to redeem us. And not just to redeem us as like, it's just a paperwork thing, but to redeem us in the whole of life, that we would be redeemed from every lawless deed. We'd be redeemed from sin, from glorying in the flesh. We would be redeemed from pride and self-exaltation, that we would be redeemed from idolatry, that we would, instead of those things, be purified. Jesus died to redeem us, to purify us, and to purify for himself a people, a people for his own possession. We, as believers in the true Jesus, those who have received the biblical gospel and believe the biblical Jesus, we belong to him. We are owned by him, and his purpose in redeeming us would be, or was that we would be zealous for good deeds. Baked into this redemption in Jesus Christ is the intention that we would be workers for God, servants of God, that we would be doers of good deeds and be zealous for these good deeds, enthusiastic about these good deeds, energetic about these good deeds. That was part of the purpose for redeeming us. So yes, God's redeeming us would be that we would go to heaven, that we would have the hope of heaven. And that's usually the only thing that gets emphasized when people talk about salvation. And it's very much worth emphasizing. But alongside that needs to be this emphasis of this life here and now, before we die, before we go to heaven, there's this life. For some of us, we have decades upon decades to live after believing in the gospel. That, Like my children, they've believed in the gospel at a very young age. Praise God for that. Now they have decades ahead of them where they would be set apart for God, purified for Jesus, zealous for good deeds, that they would be shunning lawless deeds, shunning worldliness, shunning ungodliness, embracing living sensibly, embracing living righteously, embracing living a godly life in this present age. That is the gospel call, not that those works save anybody. 
but that those who have received salvation, who have believed in the gospel, would be instructed by that same gospel to live that way. So that it's just an amazing thing, isn't it? That the gospel touches on all of life. It's not just signing up for fire insurance, which, you know, some people will say, that's what the Christian gospel is, that's what grace is, you just get fire insurance and then you go live however you want. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, yes, if you want to use that illustration, you do get fire insurance, okay? You are spared from the fire of God's wrath. You are spared from Hades and the lake of fire. But additionally, you are called through that same gospel to give your life to your insurance agent, to give your life to Jesus, that all of your life would be for Jesus Christ. That's the fullness of the gospel message. And for those of us who are believers, we also have this amazing verse tucked in the middle of this, verse 13, that as we are living sensibly and righteously and godly, verse 12 says, we also get to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So let's take the the second part of that verse first. Jesus here is called God. Very important, isn't it? You don't just throw around that term, and Paul certainly didn't. But he says that our great God, our great Savior, is Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't a separate being from God. Jesus is the one true God. He's our great God and Savior. Very important to understand. This is Trinitarian stuff. Some people don't like the Trinity and uh, are skeptical of the way it's been articulated through church history. And, okay, you know, I can understand some skepticism about uh, how men articulate doctrine. Okay, I can understand that. But So let's just set that aside and focus on what the Bible says. Right here, the Bible is calling Jesus God. Paul, the apostle, is calling Jesus God. How many gods did Paul believe in? You better believe he only believed in one God. Paul was not a polytheist. Paul was not a polytheist. That's kind of funny. Paul was truly a monotheist, one God. He says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is only one God. He's absolutely clear about that. And Jesus is God. Is Jesus the Father? No, Jesus is the Son. So now you have this doctrine of one God, yet there's God the Father and God the Son. You'll also note, of course, in Paul's writings, there's the Spirit, God the Spirit. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three gods? Nope. One God. Okay, that's important to notice. But then also you have, in the first half of verse 13, that this is what believers get to do to look for the blessed hope. This does kind of go back in my mind to 1 Thessalonians 1, where we touched on briefly the idea of waiting and serving at the same time, that we are to serve the Lord as we wait for the appearance of His Son. We are to serve God, waiting for the appearance of His Son, Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Very similar passage here. We are to serve the Lord, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
waiting for or looking for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our God, Jesus. That's amazing. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah, What are you waiting for? You are waiting for, you are looking for the appearance of Jesus, which could be any day. You live for the Lord knowing that he could return any day. You're not looking for signs of what's going to happen in Israel next week, next month, next year. You know how long people have been talking about what's going on in Israel? A long, long time, especially since they went back to their land, part of their land, in 1948. You don't have to look at all those signs. Those signs are going to keep going on. Okay, You're going to think, oh, it, it's, there's a lot of stuff going, over there, going on over there. That means Jesus is going to return soon. No, there's nothing, no sign that precedes the coming of our Lord. It could actually be when we think Israel's totally dormant. Maybe they're driven out of their land. Maybe statehood is taken away from them sometime in the future. Maybe all that happens to Israel, and it's just like nothing happening. It seems like we've taken steps back. And so a lot of people would say, well, Jesus isn't going to be returning because there's nothing happening in Israel. It could be at that very time that the Lord returns. And then everything concerning Israel and the end times happens really quickly after the church has been taken to the Father's house. That could be the case. All right, We, we just simply don't know when Jesus is going to return. So instead of paying attention to all that stuff, as Christians, we should look for the blessed hope. We should look for the return of Jesus. That, this also means we don't have to fear. Uh, some people can get really afraid and think, well, I, I read about this tribulation that's coming in Revelation, how you know a third of the world's going to experience this, and the water's going to be turned to blood, and you know there's going to be the sun scorching people, and hailstones that are really big. You know, you read all that stuff. That's not for you. Don't have your eyes focused looking for those tribulation signs. You get to look for the blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus. That's the next thing for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. But if you are not a believer in Jesus, you don't have a hope. If you're not a believer in the gospel, if Jesus Christ isn't your God and Savior, you don't have hope. And the next thing for you is that you will face the judgment of God. You'll either die, and after you die, then comes, comes judgment. This is Hebrews chapter 9. Or you will go through this time of God's wrath being poured out on the face of the earth. You will not be rescued from the wrath that is to come because Jesus is not your Savior. So my advice to you, my encouragement, my admonition, my instruction is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus, who is God, died in your place for your sins, paid the full price. There's nothing left for you to pay. And he rose again on the third day, proving that he is who he said he was. He is Lord of all things, and death could not hold him. He ascended into heaven, and he's at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his own. Trust 
in what he has done. Put all of the chips on the table in his direction. All of your hope is placed on the work of Jesus, and you will be saved. Don't rely on your baptism. Don't rely on the good deeds that you've done. Don't rely on the fact that you know you haven't been as bad of a sinner as some other people. None of that matters. What matters is Jesus and what he has done. Would you trust in him today and believe on him with your whole heart? It would be a, a, just a major blessing. It would, be, it would be the best thing you've ever done in your life, and you would never, ever regret it. Thanks for listening. Hope this has been an encouragement. I love looking at the Bible, love studying the Bible. Thanks for joining me, and uh, I hope you have a great day in the Lord today. God bless.